Welcome to Living Southern Oregon, a podcast dedicated to discovering and exploring all Southern Oregon has to offer. I'm your host, Simona Fino, and I will be introducing you to the people who live here, the things they love, and what makes Southern Oregon a magical place to call home. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Living Southern Oregon. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you all to Audrey Stangy. She is the ambassador of Moo for the Rogue Creamery. Audrey is a cheesemonger, farm educator, animal lover, and advocate for mission-driven foods, especially cheese. She's a recent transplant to Southern Oregon. Audrey moved out of her hometown of Los Angeles early in the pandemic and came to the area in hopes of landing a job with her favorite cheesemaker. She is in love with the landscape and the community, which we'll get to hear more about. So welcome, Audrey. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come on your podcast. Absolutely. Well, Road Creamery, I mean, come on, that is just a known name around here and I think probably a highlight of where most people visit when they come to the area. Yeah, we do get a lot of visitors that are just passing through, and we're the one stop that they make mm-hmm. off of the highway, and that's an incredible privilege and a great honor to have. It's like you're stopping in this one place in Southern Oregon <laughs> on your way from San Francisco to Portland right. or from Seattle to Los Angeles, and we're the stop. So it's it's really great to meet people from other places and you know experience how they buy the cheese and how they like the cheese and they're fans and they've been fans for many years. And I myself was a fan not that long ago, three years ago. (laughs) I was a cheesemonger um, working in Los Angeles and came on a road trip, kind of an exploratory potential moving up north road trip. And we passed through Grant's Pass because we needed gas and stopped at the farmer's market there. I thought that the farmer's market was the coolest farmer's market I had ever seen. And then we went out to the, the dairy and I was like, wow, this place is amazing. I wish that I could come live here and work here. And I never believed that I would. And then a little over a year later, I was here working. <laughs> just You think it and it kind of happens if you just keep thinking about it and going towards it. So I'm happy that it has turned out how it has. Yeah. So coming from Los Angeles, has that been a pretty big shift? Because that, were you in LA proper? I was. I was living in Echo Park, which is kind of downtown LA almost. It's really close to Dodger Stadium and um, it's very, very urban. Lots of people around and lots of cars and there's a lot of good things about that. There's so many things to eat and places to go and different people to talk to, but uh, it does wear on you that just like the constant traffic and <laughs> the smells of the cars and the sounds of the freeways everywhere. And it's, it's just a more difficult life in general with a lot less resource to go around. Mm. So that's kind of why we wanted to move to a smaller place. And I wanted to work for Rube Creamery, so I was like, well, we're moving somewhere within driving distance of Grant's Pass because I wanted to work at the dairy. And it just happened to be that nobody was there when I came for my interview and they were like, hey, somebody needs to go run the farm stand. Would you like to do it? And so it was like a few days later, I think it was four days after I arrived in Southern Oregon, I started working 
And so it took me a really long time to adjust and settle in because I just went to it right away. So did you land in Grants Pass then? No, we actually landed in Glendale, which is at the very southern border of Douglas County. Yeah. Uh, So we're in that little tiny town and we, I mean, I had not seen the house that I rented before I rented it. It's, you know, really difficult to find rental housing, even not rental housing, just housing in general is so scarce here. And coming from another state, people are very reluctant to rent to you, especially from California. And now that I live here, I understand why. (laughs) There's definitely uh, an attitude that comes along with coming from just a bigger place, not California specifically, but the mentality of a person who lives in the city is totally different from somebody who lives in a smaller community like we do. And so I'm happy to have landed where we did by accident, you know, renting a little homestead with no animals or anything on it, but we had sheep like 30 days after moving here and then chickens and ducks. And now we have chickens, ducks, pigeons, two goats, no, three goats and five sheep. All right, you dove right into <laughs> the <laughs> rural lifestyle downtown LA, a rural lifestyle. Yeah, That's I really impressive. wanted to have a, I wanted to have a closer connection to the food that I sell. And most cheesemongers have never even made cheese or seen it made. And I wanted to go even further and know what it was like to have a milking animal and have a relationship with the animal and milk her every day and then make things or just consume her milk. And it, it's very, very different from selling cheese in a cheese shop to very rich and famous people in Los Angeles, (laughs) but it's a lot more enriching for me. That's for sure. All right. So you've been there for a couple of years. So you, what, what did you start off doing? You were starting off at the farm stand. Is that right? So the farm stand was closed at the beginning of the pandemic for about six months. Mm. So it was just close to the public and nobody was available to work in Grants Pass because most of the staff of Creamery is in Central Point or Medford area. I was close enough and it was, I mean, it was a lot closer for me to work there than to come to Central Point every day. So they offered me that job and I took it and kind of rebuilt the farm stand um, into what it is now, which is we're open all year long. We're open from 10 to 5, Wednesday through Sunday. We're doing tours twice daily and they're free. It's at 10 a.m. or at 2 p.m. And you don't need a reservation unless you have a big group, which we love those as well. So we do all kinds of field trips and social groups. And also, if you just have a big family reunion and everybody wants to come at once, we do like to be able to schedule those things. It's a very small staff out at the farm. We have a total of four employees, two of those being farmers and two for the farm stand and tours. So we do it on a a skeleton crew, but we do an amazing job of providing a really great experience for all of our visitors. Excellent. So if people want to sign up or look at that tour, what do they do? Go on. They can go to our website, roguecreamer.com. There's a tab for visit and there's lots of information there on our tours, on our hours, what we have at the farm. We do have a small cheese shop and some Rogue Creamer gear that you can purchase inside of the shop. We also make the famous grilled cheeses. We serve tomato soup. We hope to have our ice cream back soon. And we do have a liquor license in the works. So someday soon we'll have beer and wine and cheese available to go hang out in our patio and enjoy the nice farm air. <laughs> I love it. And what does the tour in, entail? What, what 
are you touring the farm itself? Are you touring how Jesus made, or is it more focused on animals? What, what the, the tour heck? at the farm is only about the dairy farm and how we do our organic dairying. Mm-hmm. We have a pretty unique farm with two automatic, automated robots that milk our cows. So this is how we run our farm with only two people. They do most of the moving of the animals. They help with cows that need assistance birthing. They feed all of the calves. They move pastures. They manage the farm property. But they don't have to do any of the milking. They occasionally have to service the robots because the robots will text them and tell them that they need an adult supervision. <laughs> and in that case, they have to like come back from the field and, and figure out whatever's going on with the robot and then go back to whatever they were doing before. But both of them live on the property. So they're very hardworking people that are kind of sun up to sundown all year long employees. And so we're very grateful for those two and the, the incredible work that they do to provide milk for our cheese. That's awesome. Wow. I didn't realize it was such a skeleton crew. That's impressive. It's very small. Yeah. So we, you know, we rely on some tractors and and lots of automation. The tour, we show you the robot milkers. That's kind of the main draw. Um, Most people have seen a cow before, but maybe not seen a cow get milked. And most of those have not seen a cow get milked by a robot. So it's really fun to have people that do have experience in, in the dairy industry because they'll come in and be like, oh, I've seen lots of cows get milked. I, I know, you know, exactly how it is. And those are the ones when they get to the part where you actually see the robots finding the teats, cleaning the teats and stripping the teats and, and then milking them and then washing their feet off. And everything has happened without a person even being around. They finally get it like, oh, this is awesome. You guys can go on vacation and you can actually have a life and be a dairy farmer, which is a new concept because before the last 15 years, dairy farmers would have to be there with the herd, milking them twice a day. And that's a, you know, 12 hour split. So your day is very long all year long. And a lot of your work is outside and it's not always comfortable to be outside. So you just deal with it. The robots have definitely improved the the life yeah. and the balance of our farmers. Wow. All right. That is impressive. I can't wait to check it out. I it's still super done cool. a tour. My family has, so oh, they've awesome. seen it, awesome. <laughs> but I have not. Yeah. The tours aren't very long. The farm is not very big. Right now we're just over 200 head and we only milk about half of those every day. So usually what you'll see on the tour is maybe we'll see the weaning calves from a distance and kind of talk about the, the cycle of when a calf is born and how long they stay on the farm. They actually leave our farm and go to a calf preschool at our president's ranch for a little while. And then they come back and then they'll live on the farm for the rest of their productive life. Um, so it's really neat to be able to show people and children and older people that, you know, everybody has their own perspective and their own experience of dairy and we get to show them exactly how we do it and there's no hiding anything. I can be totally honest and show you every single thing that, that is visible and it's a really wonderful thing to kind of dispel myths about dairy, which some of them are true in other instances, but at our dairy we really try to treat the animals as best as we possibly can with the resource we have. I'm curious, what are some of the myths? What are some of the things that you come across that people make assumptions? There's a lot of things on the internet where, you know, I don't know who's behind them and I don't know how much truth or or false information there is, but 
it seems to be that there's a vilification of animal husbandry, of livestock, and specifically of dairy. There's some videos from some other dairies that are much larger and much more commercial dairies that show kind of like animal mistreatment, and there's a lot of sort of propaganda trying to vilify dairies. So I think that it's great to be able to show people these cows are walking into this milking station by themselves. We are not pushing them in. It's completely voluntary. They want the treats that they get inside of the milking parlor. They also want the relief of not having 40 pounds of milk hanging off of their body mm. for more time. And there's an endorphin release. So, you know, it's one thing to watch a video that somebody has carefully edited on the internet. It's another thing to go to a place where it actually happens and talk to the people that deal with the animals every day and, you know, are responsible for those decisions. Our two farmers, it's really fun to watch their relationship with the animals. Like, they know them all by name and number, even though there are 200 of them. I know maybe 25 to 30 of them. <laughs> and really, the ones that I know, I recognize them because they were calves when I began at the dairy. So I had a lot of learning to do. I'm a Los Angeles city girl. I did not grow up around agriculture or farming at all. So I had to just observe and learn. And I did that by watching baby cows and just falling in love with all of the sweet baby calves that were there. Now, two years later, those calves are adults. They have had their first babies and now are coming into milk. So I recognize them. I know their names and their numbers. I can spot them from a really far distance and say, oh, that's Hazelnut over there, or that's Jam, or whoever it is. There's too many to name. There are so many favorites. But it's really interesting to, to watch, you know, how much the two farmers do care about the health and the safety and the happiness of the herd. Yeah, that's impressive. Again, I just say with such a small staff and being able to have that kind of awareness. And I also love that it is organic and that animals are being treated well. That's yeah. really important for a lot of folks. They get massages. <laughs> they have 68 acres of pasture to graze on. We do an intensive rotational grazing program, which rotates them through a new paddock of a few acres every few days. So that helps to regenerate the topsoil and to build that water retention and uh, diversity of microbial life underneath where the grass is. And that will help the grass to grow even more and to grow even more nutritious food for the cows. By putting them on another one, they're not walking on eating on top of their own waste. That has a chance to soak in, refertilize the ground. And then a month later, when they get back to that pasture, it's maybe 10 to 12 inches high, and that's where we want them to be eating the food down to where it's about four inches high, because that's where all the parasites live. Ah. So it's a, like a, a very low impact and low energy way to rotate them through and not have to cut hay, which we did actually this year because we had such a great early summer and late spring where we had tons of rain, not a lot of hot temperatures, so we had incredible grass growth this year. And this is the first year we've ever been able to cut our own hay from our fields. Excellent. And that's because of the prior 10 years of rebuilding that topsoil. So 68 acres and how many? And 200 cows. Mm -hmm. And is that pretty much provide all of the production that's needed to support what is made for... It's not. No. Okay. So 200 
a little over 200, but a little over 200 cows seems like a lot of animals, and it is a lot of animals and a lot of milk, but when you're making cheese, you're losing about 90% of that weight in water. So milk is, cow's milk is about 87% water. Um, so you're throwing that down the drain or you're feeding it to pigs in the form of whey, but when, if you have 600 gallons of milk, that's roughly 5,000 pounds of milk, and that's only 500 pounds of cheese. And we make a lot more cheese than that. So we have to purchase milk from other organic dairies, and one that we're using right now is in Etna, California, Hale Dairy. It's a really great organic dairy, and it's fairly close to us. So we don't have very many large organic producers available to us, but... That's the closest yeah. one. And then how and how much cheese is being made? I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> like trying to picture it's mountains a lot. of cheese. <laughs> so to give you an example, the Rogue River Blue, we make about 10,000 wheels of that. And each wheel is five Ooh. pounds. So that's 50,000 pounds of just one cheese that we make. And that's only made for a few months a year. Okay. And that is the most famous of your cheeses. It certainly is. I know. Let's hear a little bit about that for people who haven't heard this news. <laughs> <laughs> three years ago. Um, so it was almost three years ago, like next week or a couple weeks, mm -hmm. we won the first Americans to ever win the best cheese in the world at the World Cheese Awards. This is a competition that happens yearly. It's typically in Western Europe or it has been at least up until now. This year's competition will be in Wales. Last year it was in Spain. The previous year before that, they skipped because of COVID, so we got to be reigning champions for two years, <laughs> but you can only really win the best in show one time with a single cheese. So that cheese will now not win best in show again, but it is now one cheese that has won best in show. So you compete against about 4,000 different cheeses. Wow. And it's kind of run like a dog show where there's <laughs> lots of different categories of soft and semi-soft and fresh and different styles, wash rinds and all of the different styles of cheese. There are lots and lots of categories. And then after each of those categories has a winner, they will do a best in show. And there's uh, judges that are extremely skilled in tasting and sort of a uh, taking apart a cheese and figuring out which one deserves the title of the best in the world. And we happen to be the lucky ones who won that year. We were absolutely not expecting that to happen because you could never predict if you were going to win. Yeah. Um, there's just too much competition. Well, and especially, if, like you said, no American... Nobody's yes. won before. No, and nobody right? expects Except an American, American to win against, you know, the, the Parmigiano-Reggianos, the Gruyers and Comtes, and the Roqueforts, and all of the cheeses that paved the way for the cheeses that we make here. Those have typically won every year because they've perfected those recipes. They're amazing cheeses, and they're amazing cheesemakers. We do have a slight advantage over some of those cheeses in that we don't have to follow rules that are codified into law. And most of those cheeses are very, very protected and protected for a good reason because they want those products named with that name to all have the same characteristics and kind of maintain the, the cheese for future generations to sell. They don't want people to take that cheese and that take that name and buy it and then adulterate the cheese and make it into something that isn't as good as the original thing. 
So all of those, Gruyere, Parmigiano-Reggiano, Roquefort, Comte, there are hundreds of these cheeses that are protected. And so most of them uh, came about because everybody who lived in a certain place kind of made cheese in a certain way. And then they would get gather all of those farmers and cheesemakers together and say, okay, we're going to come up with an SOP for this cheese. And we're all going to do it to these specifications. And there will be variation because we have different animals. We have different hands. We might have different materials. But these are the things that have to happen for this cheese to be called this. And in the U.S., we don't really have that. So we can be a little bit more creative and, you know, we can experiment with things. We can do things to the way that we like it. We have a, a different taste here than they do in other places, which is totally expected. Yeah. So it's kind of a cool thing about being an American cheesemaker is that we have very little restriction on what we can do and what we can call things. Okay. I had no idea that that was, a, <laughs> that was so much to the... What did you say? It was in, it's in code. So it, right, like it's, it's actually a, it's a, a written law that yes. they can't go outside of that formula. Right. Or right. So if you're making Parmigiano-Reggiano, you have to make it a certain way. You have to make it with milk that is skimmed from the night before and whole milk from the next day. And it has to be only farms from a certain region. So the Parma, Emilia Romana region, they would come only from those places. And then even the production methods are, are very specific. The size of the wheel has to be a certain size. If you were to make the same cheese with the same recipe from the same day's milk even and make a smaller format, it will age differently. It's going to age more quickly the smaller the cheese is. Or if you were to press it for less time, it would have more moisture in it, and that would also affect the aging. So because we're making a product that ages out for a very long time, all of the things that you do in the very beginning of the make, they won't express themselves until the end. And so you have to be confident in your skills at the beginning in order to know what's going to happen six months to you know three years from now. Yeah, and that would be a bummer to get to that three years from now and yeah. you've not done something correctly and it, and it turns happens. out completely different. Yeah. yeah. Sure there are people whose job it is to just go try wheels of cheese all day long oh. and figure out which ones are the best and which ones are not. <laughs> that sounds like a fun job if you yes. like cheese. <laughs> and we do this to an extent at Rogue Creamery. We do, um, it's called an organoleptic tasting. So we will have lots of our staff come through and taste a bunch of different lots of the same cheese, but from different make days and grade them and decide which ones we want to put our label on, which ones we think maybe this one something happened and this one is not going to be sold as whatever we intended this to be. We might crumble this and make it into something that is still blue cheese and still a delicious product, but isn't what we intended. So mm -hmm. um, that happens. Sometimes there's happy accidents. <laughs> so like we're, we're lucky to be able to go taste those also. obviously are very knowledgeable and you did this in LA. So how long were you a cheesemonger before coming up here and, and working on the farm? I've been a cheesemonger since 2011 and had a little bit of cheese experience before then, but I went to culinary school in 2007. I told so many years ago, I don't remember the dates. <laughs> you get to a point where you're like, yeah, before 2010, after 20, 2004. So it's in that time. 
And I, I did a little bit of um, cheese plating in a pastry cook job that I had, and I just kind of got uh, the cheese bug. Mm-hmm. And from then, started working in Whole Foods, and that's where a lot of people cut their teeth in the cheese mm-hmm. industry because you have access to a ton of different cheeses. Did that for many years, and then went and ran my own little cheese counter at a place called Erewhon, which is an all-organic grocer in Los Angeles. And then from there went into like a smaller format, small cheese shop setting, which is where you get to really taste all of the super fine cheeses that even the big Whole Foods and Costco's and things, they can't order from very small producers because they can't produce enough to supply them. So small cheese shops is where, where you find the true gems of the cheese world. Okay. And so I did that for a long time and decided, hey, I want to just go work for a cheesemaker. <laughs> and yeah. here we are. And now you're on that end. So yeah. do you get into the creamery very often then? and Or not the creamery, the, the storefront, I guess. Where is, is that where some of it, most of it's being made? Yeah, so our cheese is made street? right there in on Front Street in okay. Central Point. There's two rooms. There's the cheddar making room, which if you go to the cheese shop that is open every day mm-hmm. there, you can watch the people make cheese inside of the cheddar making room. The other room, the blue room, is doesn't have any windows that you can see through, but it is just next door. You walk by it as you walk into the okay. cheese shop. So yeah, all of our cheese is made right there. The milk comes in in a big truck early in the morning. They process and pasteurize and then make cheese with it the next day. And when is that cheese festival that we were just, we were talking about? I had been to this year was in April. April. It was the first week of April. Yeah. I think previously it had been in March and then I think they pushed it this, this year to April. They had moved it to the expo center, which we really, really liked. So we're hoping that that can happen again because it was a much more smooth entry and exit. And just the, I mean, the venue is made for that. And our, little courtyard over there is not really designed very well for welcoming that many people at one time. So yeah. I'm hoping that it happens again this year at the Expo. It would be great. Excellent. Well, we'll have to all keep an eye out. And so now folks know they can go onto the website and I'm sure it'll be posted there. Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. <laughs> That's through the Oregon Cheese Guild. So make sure you follow them because they have all kinds of fun cheesy mm-hmm. events. We just did one in Portland this last weekend. It was called The Wedge, and there was all kinds of Oregon cheesemakers and cider and beer and distilleries there tasting all of their products. It was a really fun day and got to meet and taste a lot of different things from different makers I'd never met before. Fantastic. Well, how about I'm going to switch direction a little bit. Sure. Um, now that you've been here a couple of years, what have been some of your favorite things to do or places that you've explored? Especially, I'm just curious, coming from, you know, urban area, right? It's so yeah. different. There's not the same sort of, you know, concerts and restaurants and <laughs> <No>. <laughs> nightclubs and <laughs> museums and all right. of that. So it's a shift. It's a shift in how you spend your time. What have you found to be kind of where your your time goes. Well, I live in a place where I have really great access to public lands, so I can drive about 10 minutes and be where I will never see a person for the entire day or maybe even hear another vehicle. So I got really into mushroom hunting last year. It's kind of one of the reasons, another reason why I wanted to come to Oregon is because I've always just been fascinated with like misty, mossy forests with mushrooms in them. That's just my environment that I want to be in. So last year I started exploring my own neighborhood in Douglas County and 
found all kinds of spots that I will not share with you on this podcast. <laughs> Fine. Because I don't People really are really very guess. protective. <laughs> um, Let me guess, morels. No, I did find or- some morels, but you know, we'll have some more. We had a really terrible fire not that long ago, but I do now know that I can go look for morels there next spring. <laughs> but I found some great Masutake hunting spots and mm. some chanterelle spots. So I love to cook and I love to eat mushrooms and I'm that's probably where I spend most of my time, at least in the fall and winter. On my days off, I'm usually with my dogs mushroom hunting <laughs> and feeding my chickens and doing all of the farm chores. But yeah, I think that's what I enjoy most. And that's what I wanted most out of moving here was having easier access to the outdoors because we were not really doing the museums and the restaurants and the nightclubs in Los Angeles, even though we kind of lived in the middle of that. We, every time we went out, we were going to the mountains anyway. So it's like, why or why did we live somewhere where you have to drive, you know, 45 minutes to get mostly just through traffic and then up to the (laughs) mountains because they're really just there. There is quite a lot of public land and, and really cool wilderness just outside of LA, but nobody really goes and uses it. It is difficult to get to. It's. I think it's not even area. difficult. Like, uh, it's well, traffic wise. I think traffic wise, it's difficult. Wise, it's difficult to <laughs> get sitting in traffic. It's is true. It's but. hard to get from downtown LA to the beach. It's like you know an hour at least <laughs> to yeah. get you there, and it seems so close if you look at a map. But it's yeah. not as easy as that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, traffic, I love that we just don't really have it here. And it makes it so much nicer. Because if you are going to drive 45 minutes, you're actually going somewhere. And you're going somewhere kind of far away from where you started. I mean, it takes me 35 minutes to get to work from Glendale. But it's, you know, a really beautiful drive. (laughs) It is a beautiful drive. It's a little bit scary when it's snowing or raining really, really hard. But that's not too many days. Yeah. We're, we're blessed with beautiful weather most of the time, I will say. Yes, we are. I like having the four seasons, mm-hmm. but we're not inundated with snow Yeah, in the winter, which is good because I don't know how to drive in the snow. I don't know about you, but I, I just guess don't. <laughs> I just, I have to take a day off. I just, yeah. Especially going over those three mm-hmm. passes, mm-hmm. it's so scary and nice. You know, it's like every time, even if it's just rain, there's always an accident. And I don't want to be just the person that happened to slide that day so I would rather just stay home and take the day (laughs) yeah and what other things have you discovered being here what would you say it sounds like nature and and being able to just not be in a city and urban environment Mm -hmm. has been the main thing anything else about this area that you've come to love you you mentioned community and I was kind of curious about that because that's something that I I mean I think living in the small town that I live in has been very eye-opening I think the thing that I like about this place which is very different from Los Angeles is there is a huge variety of ideologies and political spectrums and religious people and everybody has their own thing and there's people on like all sides. It's not like two sides. There's like 50 sides here and everybody seems to get along pretty well and just kind of live in harmony. Mostly Mm -hmm. of course there's some friction, but I think that that's not something that you really see in Los Angeles. The, the communities there are very separated and segregated and 
It's also just kind of a one-note town. Everybody sort of goes along with what everybody else is doing and thinking. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have some challenges to my own thoughts and beliefs and, you know, have to think about why do I believe these things or why do I think these mm-hmm. things and, you know, also just respect other people and their freedom to think or do and live however they want. Yeah. I think that is a beautiful thing. I think we need more of it. Yes. I'm I'm in full agreement on that. (laughs) Yeah. It is a wonderful community here. Excellent. Well, if you don't have anything else that you want to add about the area, I don't, I don't think I have any other questions about Southern Oregon in general, because you've you've obviously spent, I'm guessing most of your time between (laughs) the mushroom hunting (laughs) and on your own farm. Because, you know, when you have land like that and animals, they take a lot of they do. Yeah. And we're looking to, well, we're, I'm hopefully going to end this podcast and open my email and have an offer accepted <gasps> on a, a new property. So we'll have a little bit more room to grow and expand my herd of dairy pets. Excellent. <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope you get that accepted. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being here and for talking to us and listeners definitely go check out Rogue Creamery and we'll put the link on the show notes so that you have that. It's a wonderful place. I've been there, I've been to the, to the main store and also the cheese festival. If you get a chance to do that, when that comes around next year, it is definitely worth checking out. Yes. That's a must do. It is a must do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Simona, for having me. It's yeah. very fun. All right. Well, everyone, we'll be back again next week with another guest. So until then, take care. This podcast is produced by Simona Fino and co-produced by James Dedakis and Jaded Media. Original music by Samuel Lawrence.